Last time, we finished off covering a background to the law, which we said is called Torah. Torah means to show the way. So it's not a legal law like the one we have out here in the West, but it's a, it's a way to show you towards God and a way of obedience. And then Christ was born as a Jew and descendant of King David, but under the law. So he understood the law, he studied the law, he obeyed the law. He was, for example, circumcised, he attended the temple, the synagogue, he wore fringes as an example, we brought out various things. And the law of Christ, which we say, you know, uh, which we pray, right, about obeying your statutes, obeying your commandments, that is either a restatement of the law or an expansion and elucidation of it. But it's all going in the same direction. And it might, because you bring out the full spirit of it, it eliminates some unnecessary elements. Just like we gave the example of you teaching your kid not to cross a red light, well, you know, when there's a fire across the street and they're older, they might run across a red light to help somebody. So they're kind of violating the law, right? But there's the spirit of the law which says, you know, we care about people, not the red light. And the red light is there to help us and guide us, but it's not this kind of thing that becomes an end in itself. But people build a fence around the law because they have, it, it makes them feel safe and that's not always good and sometimes Christ condemned that when he did away, when it does away with the principles of the law. So if you say, you know, don't ever cross a red light, that's the, the law. You know, no matter what happens, you never cross a red light and somebody's burning across the street, that's not good. So that's when it violates the principle of the law. Okay, so that kind of background is important to understand the people. And so now we're going to cover some of the people. And before Christ arrives on the scene, there's what's called the Maccabees. And the Maccabees are referred to in the books of the Maccabees. Now those are not in the Protestant Bible, but they're in the Orthodox Bible. And the it was part of the Jewish uh, writings, and the church kept those, and, uh, and, and it has some of that story before the arrival of Christ to the Holy Land. And, for example, it's hinted at in the New Testament, in Hebrews 11.34, when it says they quenched the vi these are people who exercised faith, they quenched the violence of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness they were made strong, they waxed valiant in fight, and they turned to flight the armies of the aliens. The Maccabees came into fame because when the Greeks took over the Holy Land, they said, what is this law of God? Forget this. Forget circumcision, forget not eating pork, forget, you know, the Sabbath. You're going to follow the Greek ways of doing things. Well, people that were faithful to God and faithful to the law of God said no, you know, and the, and the Greeks violated the temple itself and they came in and, and, and sacrificed pigs on the altar uh, of the temple and they said no way, so they, they battled against them and they won. And that's when it says, you know, they turned to flight the armies of aliens. <coughs> so they chased the Greeks out and they uh, became independent. And this is important. It sets the stage for when Christ arrives on the scene. So 
uh, anybody ever hear of Hanukkah? Okay, Hanukkah is a celebration of that. This uh, battle that took place in 150 BC, and according to tradition, a, a miracle took place there where they rededicated the temple. It's actually, Hanukkah is called the Feast of Rededication, or the Feast of Dedication, which means they rededicated the temple, they cleaned it out of all of that stuff that the Greeks had put there, and uh, they, they, they only had oil enough for one day. And the tradition is that the, that oil lasted for eight days. And so they light eight days of candles for Hanukkah. The Feast of Lights, if, and good point. Thank you very much. That was, that was going to be the next thing. So it's actually mentioned in John, in John chapter 10, verse 22, where Jesus goes down to Jerusalem, and it was at Jerusalem at the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter. So this is also called, as somebody said, the Feast of Lights. And uh, Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So you may bypass that reading the Gospels, but he was actually down for this Feast of Hanukkah, down at, at the temple. So when they took over, then there needed to be a, a, an administration, excuse me, an administration of the Holy Land, and that administration was under the Hasmoneans, who were part of the people who fought in this battle. And there were Jewish rulers of an independent Judah in 150 BC. And they're mentioned in the book of the Maccabees. Unfortunately, they became very political and they brought together the office of the high priest and the governor. Uh, they forced the Edomians who lived south of Judah, which are kind of Arab people, they forced them to become Jewish, to convert to Judaism. That's important because Herod came from those people. So they had converted to Judaism. So they were kind of Jewish, but not really. And, and it's never good to convert anybody by the edge of the sword. So they also, uh, the Hasmoneans attacked the Samaritans and they set up an animosity with the Samaritans and the Samaritans attacked them. And uh, in the temple they accepted uh, Hellenic influences, but they were, they were really political and some of the Pharisees objected to their politics, so they went and crucified some of these Pharisees, hundreds of them. So the Jews ended up crucifying some of their own people. A lot of people don't know this. And finally the Hasmonean queen, there was a queen that made peace with the Pharisees and appointed them to the Sanhedrin, which is the body regulating the, the legal affairs of Judah. So that was the background before Christ came. But these people were fighting back and forth, so finally the Romans came in in 46 BC. Now we're 46 before Christ, or a little bit less. He, he was, uh, Christ was probably born around 4 BC. Don't ask why it's called BC at that, like 4 BC, but the counting started at zero. But anyways, General Pompey and the Romans, this is an authentic picture from that time. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, the Romans came in and uh, they took over. Now, does anybody know why that area was so important to the Romans? Why did they care about Judea? Trade route? Kind of, kind of, not quite. There were trade routes, those were important, but they could have received some of that trade through the Jews. The problem was that 
on the east were these people called the Parthians. And the Parthians were horsemen on bow, with bows and arrows. And they were very good. They could shoot from both sides. Okay? And they knew how to shoot just sitting on a horse going at very fast speeds. And they could defeat the Romans quite easily with their uh, uh, the techniques. So they wanted, not because they loved Jews, not because they cared about the Jewish people, but they wanted a buffer to the Parthians in the east. And, and so they kind of, it was practical to take care of the Jews. They did not like Jews. These Jews were very strange to the Romans. They had all these weird laws. They didn't eat pork. Who doesn't eat pork? You know? And they, they had these weird languages and they, they worshipped in the synagogue. You know, what is that? And they, they only had one God and the Romans had many. And many is better than one. So, you know, they didn't understand the Jews. And so there's always this tension and these rulers, as you can see, there was an independent Judah, Judea. They're not going to be appreciated by the population. So there's this underlying resentment by the time Christ comes on the scene. And they, what do they want? People want political liberation from the Romans. That's what they wanted. So the Romans arrived and eventually they set up Herod because they figure He's, he, he has good associations with the Romans. He's half Jewish, so he's not completely Jewish. He has a kind of a background. He's a very practical person. So uh, they eventually appoint him, uh, through first his father and then eventually him. Uh, but the interaction with the Romans is like a who's who when it comes to, to Herod. So, um, so first of all, uh, he was appointed, he had a hand in appointing the high priest uh, among the, uh, the Jews, so he was involved in that. And Julius Caesar confirmed the appointment and made Herod, made the father of Herod the Great, the procurator of Judea. So before Herod came on the scene, the father was set up by, by Julius Caesar. And so, so we're talking about real history, and this is important because when we read the scriptures, it happened in a real time and place, just like we say in the creed, we say, you know, under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a real person. And so Herod became, after his father, he became governor of Galilee. And after Julius Caesar was murdered, uh, he appointed, there was an, a governor uh, appointed who was appointed uh, governor of Syria by Cassius Longinus. And he was the chief conspirator and brother-in-law to Brutus who murdered Julius Caesar. Uh, and this governor in Syria backed up Herod. And Mark Antony, who was the lover of Cleopatra, defeated this Cassius and appointed Herod and his brother as tetrarchs of Judea. So these were all names that we know in history were involved in the appointment of Herod and his family uh, being, being uh, rulers of Judea. Uh, the queen that made an agreement with the Pharisees? No, I don't have the name here. I can get it. I didn't write it down. Okay, so we talked about why the Romans were there. And the Romans were very practical people. 
and they granted the Jews certain privileges because they said the one thing about the Jews is it's an ancient religion. So at least from that point of view, they appreciated ancient religions and they kind of granted. When the Christians came along, it wasn't an ancient religion. They believed something new in Christ, even though many of them were Jewish. So as long as they were considered Jewish, they were okay. But as soon as they became, they said, no, you know, we don't, we accept Jesus Christ and the Jews kicked them out of the synagogue. The Romans didn't know what to do with them and it wasn't an, an official religion like, the, like Judaism. And so Christianity was persecuted because it wasn't treated like an ancient religion. Now, these Romans were very practical and they were also very cynical and political. And uh, Pilate, I think, exemplifies this. For example, he says to, to Christ, when Christ said, you know, I am the truth, he said, what is truth? So it was a very cynical statement. And Christ didn't answer him. Well, what do you say to somebody who says, what is the truth? Do you tell him something truthful? You know, he doesn't believe in the truth. So Christ didn't even bother answering him. Okay, so Herod the Great, there are other Herods mentioned in the Bible, but this is the famous one that was alive when Christ was born. And if you remember the story, the Magi come and they're looking for, for the birth of Christ and he says he's very nervous because the, the Messiah, the Christ, is supposed to be a descendant of King David, but he's the king. a very much a paranoid, a paranoid person. And uh, he had horrible suspicions because he was defending his, his throne at all times. Uh, he had a... So for example, in the Bible, which is not recorded at least in the history that we found, he murdered uh, the 20,000 innocents because of uh, the fact that he just wanted to get rid of this potential Christ being born as a king. So he just goes and, and murders 20,000 kids just to make sure he, he gets Christ. Well, he murdered the 20,000 and didn't get Christ. But in his personal life, we know this from history, he married into the Hasmoneans. Remember, they were the rulers in Judea. And he married because this is a practical thing to do. But he actually had 10 wives. So he just added one more wife to his collection. And uh, he, there was a lot of intrigue because he was always suspicious that the Hasmoneans wanted to get back on his throne through his wife. So in the end, he ended up murdering his wife. And he also murdered the, his mother-in-law and brother-in-law, and he had two of his sons strangled. So he wasn't a very nice person. So it's kind of, you can kind of get it in the New Testament when you read about him and you say, can somebody really slaughter 20,000? Well, yes, Herod could have slaughtered 20,000 kids. Um, he, was, he, was, uh, he was one of these characters that had a lot of charisma, a lot of energy, but was very mistrusting at all times. And in the end of his life, he was ill. And there were lots of plots to obtain the throne, and that's when the Magi came. So he was the most nervous at the end of his life, and the Magi show up. Okay, so 
And we know this is the quote from the New Testament when Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, and of course they weren't mocking him, but he thought they were mocking him. He was very angry and he sent and, and slew all the children. Now, the thing about Herod is he loved to build. And he built all over the Holy Land. And that's what one of the things that made him famous. Uh, one of the places was Masada. This is what it looks like today. So when the Romans uh, crushed the Jewish rebellion, the last remnants of the rebellion were left on Masada. But this was at the time of Herod, before that time. He actually built, and this is a reconstruction of what Herod's uh, area, a uh, second palace would have looked like. And, he, and, and if you understand this area, this is the Dead Sea area. It's a complete desert. There's no life. But he had a pool built on top of here. And, 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 and slaves would fill it with water. So he, he, he loved these magnificent buildings. Uh, another place was Herodium. This is what it looks like today, not far from Jerusalem. This is what it might have looked like in Herod's time. Very beautiful. He had a lot of money spent on these constructions. Another place was Caesarea, named after Caesar. And this is what it looks like today, still left over. There's an amphitheater, there's a hippodrome uh, where they raced horses, there are various other temples. And uh, so he didn't make, uh, and this is what a picture of what it might have looked like during Herod's time. And he didn't mind mixing the Greek stuff with the Jewish stuff because he was half Jewish and he was a practical man. Uh, this is what his palace might have looked like. There's a reconstruction of first uh, century Jer uh, Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, this is a reconstruction of Herod's temples, uh, Herod's palace. Not the temple, but Herod's palace, which is not far from the temple. So this is, he, he himself lived in magnificence. And he also, most importantly for the New Testament, spent uh, a lot of time and money in rebuilding the temple. Now, if you remember from last time, the Jews came back from their exile, and they kind of rebuilt the temple by hand. They kind of put together the stones that were there, and it was very simple, and they did sacrifices. Well, Herod said, I'm going to make it magnificent. So he filled in that hole. There's a hill. He surrounded it by four walls, and he filled it with dirt so it was completely flat and it remains that way till today and then he built a temple on top of that. This is a reconstruction of what the temple would have looked like at the time of Herod. Very beautiful. And this is a kind of a, 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 a more picture-like view of what the temple area would have looked like. So you have the temple over here but Herod enclosed that entire mound with these four walls and the, the if you go and you visit it, these, uh, these stones of this enclosure, enclosing walls are staggeringly big. One of them is about 140 tons, something like that. 140 tons. And they're perfectly cut so they fit into each other. So he really uh, made sure everything was built to spec. And uh, he did it such a good job that today there still remains of that outer boundary wall, which is called the Western Wall on the left. That Western Wall is the Wailing Wall where people still remember the temple that existed back then. Now, it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, and Christ prophesied that, 
And uh, when I was uh, back there as a student in 1977, none of this was uncovered. This was uh, 2,000 years on the right side of covered by dirt. But they uh, recently uncovered it, and these are the stones that uh, the Herodian stones that the Romans threw from the top, the temple stones, when they destroyed the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem. And they still, they're still there, and they were just covered with dirt over 2,000 years. So we, I'd never seen them until they uncovered these. Okay, so there's a reference to this in the New Testament. It said, uh, the Pharisees said to Christ, 46 years was this temple in building. Will you rear it up in three days? Because he said, I will rebuild the temple in three days. And he was referring to the temple of his body. But they thought he was referring to the temple, the physical temple. Well, the temple was began in 20 BC and completed in 63 AD. But during his ministry, he was approximately 30 years old and it was already 46 years in the building. So it wasn't even completed, but it was mostly done by the time Jesus was alive. Now, the Jews under the Romans, as I mentioned, it was a very tense atmosphere. Uh, Herod's son, after Herod done, his, his son Archelaus was even more cruel and incompetent. He had more uprisings uh, than his father did, more rebellions, and finally the Romans replaced him with a procurator who's a governor who's directly responsible to the emperor. And then they put Pontius Pilate in place uh, uh, to just take care of that, that uh, area around Jerusalem and some of the areas in Judea. Uh, but no Jews were compelled to go to the army because they hated the Romans. They wouldn't be good fighters and they wouldn't fight on the Sabbath. So they weren't very good soldiers. And also because of the food laws, if they didn't eat pork, you had to run around looking for food for them. So, uh, but Romans also, you know, in order to keep the peace, they made an agreement with the Jews that they wouldn't parade the Roman standard in Jerusalem because that was a pagan, that had a pagan symbol on it. And the Jews didn't appreciate that. They, they hated the Romans. The Romans were there for practical reasons. So they said, okay, we're not going to parade the Roman standard through the Jerusalem. But they did use the Roman coins and many of the religious Jews didn't like those. And that appears in the New Testament because the Roman coins had a symbol of the emperor on it. And any symbol was considered idolatry. Any symbol of a man uh, on, a, on a kind of a, a background or a coin or any it was considered idolatrous. But they were forced to use that with the Romans, but they were not allowed to bring that into the temple. So when they were not allowed to bring that, there was exchangers, money exchangers outside that would take your Roman coins and would exchange it for temple coins which you could use in the temple area to get animals or doves or whatever you needed to get. And of course, whoever would do the exchange would take a little cut. And, and it became a big business. And that's what Christ was addressing when he overthrew the, the, the money changers. That's why they were money changers. They weren't changing, you know, your dollar into four quarters. They were changing one set of coins into more religious coins. Now, the other thing the Jews didn't like is taxation was very heavy. 
uh, you know, the Romans weren't going to pay for their uh, upkeep of Judea, even though it was for their purposes. So they imposed this heavy taxation on the people. And they hated this tax. And they didn't want to pay it, but the Romans made them pay it. Uh, and so they kind of tried at one point to trick Jesus in answering the question, should we pay the Roman tax? Well, that's a trick question, because guess what? If he says... No, we don't. We shouldn't pay the Romans tax. Well, guess who would arrest him? The Romans. And if he said, "Yeah, go ahead and pay the Roman tax," well, he would be hated by the Jews. So he was in a, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't position. And we have a very, very interesting answer to that. So, in Matthew 22 and verse 15, they they took counsel on how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent him as disciples with the Herodians. Now there's these people called the Herodians. Herodians were Jews that were saying, you know, let's, let's just back up this administration. Herod's, you know, we're okay. At least they do a good job. They build the temple. You know, they build various things in Judea. So we're, gonna, we're going to back them up. So they were more willing to go along with Herod's family who went along with Rome. But other Pharisees who were more religious said, these Herodians are not very religious people. We really, in the end, want to kick them out. But anyway, they, they came to him with the Herodians saying, Master, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. You can, you can see the honey dripping from their tongue. <laughs> Neither carest you for any man, for you regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? We really don't know, Jesus. Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you tempt me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought him a penny. And so he would, he would hold it up in front of everybody. He said, Whose image and subscription is this on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So he said to them, okay, this is Caesar's. And they didn't like that Caesar's image was there. He said, therefore, if this is Caesar's, give it to Caesar. And the things, and those belong to Caesar, but the things that are God's, give to God. And so they were left with a little bit of a puzzle as to, they had to figure out what belonged to God. Because they wanted to say the money belonged to God, but it had the image of Caesar. So they couldn't really say that. So he turned the tide on them. Very, uh, very inspired, very insightful. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So they were, you know, they really wanted to trap him in that. Now it's important to note that this is just one example of the fact that Christ really cared about the spiritual life, not about politics. He was aware of politics, but politics is a power struggle. The spiritual life is an inner struggle. And that's what he really cared about. And, and, and just like on our day, there were idiots running the government, and there were people that were good and, and decent, you know, and there were some people in between. So he didn't care as much about that as he did about addressing the inner life and the spiritual life. So people came to him, for example, in Luke 13 and verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. 
So I guess these Galileans were in rebellion and somehow we don't know the full story. So he had them killed while they were doing the sacrifices. And Jesus said, look, suppose you, do you think that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered these things? He says, I tell you no, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So immediately he went to the spiritual. Yes, these people were killed, but do you think that they were, you know, really bad people to have had this happen? In the end, you're all going to perish if you don't repent. So his message was much more broad than the individual political situation that was going on. And they also, uh, further in Luke, it says in Luke uh, 13 and chapter, uh, verse 31, the same day they came certain of the Pharisees saying to him, get out and depart from hence for Herod will kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out devils. So he knew he was a fox. He knew that Herod was not exactly the cleanest individual from a moral point of view and very sly. So he wasn't ignorant of that point, but he, he said, go and tell him what is really going on, which is, I cast out devils, I cure today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. So he, gave, he, he sent them back to Herod with a spiritual message. Now, Jesus, as we talked about, was born under the law and was, as a child growing up, uh, this was important. Uh, a part of the Jewish way of being was to study the law. If you were a religious person, and all, most people were religious, they studied the law. And they discussed the law because the law is Torah. And what does Torah mean? It's to show the way. It means to show the way. So it's never an end in itself. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be a pointer. And you're supposed to say, oh, the law says this, but what about this that the law doesn't talk about? Let's discuss that. So they would discuss those points. And they would get together. And in fact, if you go to the Western Wall today, you can still hear people discussing finer points of the, of the law and as it, as it applies to their life. And there were various discussions going on in Jesus' day. And Jesus did follow that model because the law is something that you were supposed to meditate on. If you remember in the Psalms, there are various places where it says, Oh, how love I thy law. I meditate on it day and night. That's the reason, because if you meditated on it properly as an Old Testament person, you would have perceived many important things that Jesus came later to teach. You would have perceived it, and there was one young man that did perceive some of that, and we're going to come across, across him. So, when he was 12 years old, he left his parents. They were on caravan to Jerusalem, and they were then on their way back, and he didn't go back with them. And he went directly to the temple. And after three days, when they were looking for him, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. So these are not physicians. These are doctors of the law. That is, that they really understood the law. And they debated points of the law. And he came. He would have learned most of the law in the synagogue. Remember, there's only one temple, and there are many synagogues. The synagogue was a model that came from Babylon, from the exile. And this was never written in the Old Testament. So here's an example. The synagogue was something that was oral tradition, something passed down by the Jewish church. 
and Christ was perfectly fine. So not all oral tradition and traditions of the Jews was Christ against. He was only against those traditions of the Jews that would go against the actual principles that the law was pointing to. And synagogue was not one of those. So he was in Galilee, up north, and he would attend the local synagogue, and he would study the law, listen to it every Sabbath, and study the law. And so when he came down to Jerusalem, these were the real experts that knew very fine points of the law. And so he listened to them, he asked them questions, and at the same time, they were astonished at his understanding and his answers, because he had thought about it. He had, through the Spirit of God, spent lots of time with the law, thinking about what it means and all of the implications to life. And he recognized where the Old Testament was going. These doctors of the law elsewhere were, uh, were called lawyers in the New Testament. And they were specialists. They would study the law and they would give you guidance as to how to apply it. And some of them were very sharp. And, uh, and, 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 but some of them were legalistic. And so you find oftentimes that Christ criticizes those that are legalistic. But not all of them were legalistic. And we find some of them in the New Testament, if you read carefully, that were very sharp and very wise. And they understood some of the principles of where the law was going. But some of them were professional. There would be professional lawyers, but some of them were only part-time lawyers. They might have had ordinary jobs. Some of them could have had been Pharisees. So we'll talk about the Pharisees shortly. But you could gain insight by listening carefully to the scriptures on the synagogue and the Sabbath and, and thinking about it. And, and Christ would have done that, but much more than anybody his age. And so when he came down to Jerusalem, they were amazed at how much he understood. <coughs> so there were people that had both understanding and legalism, as I mentioned. So here's an example, Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read? This was a common way of interchanging between two men who would want to study the law. How do you read the law? What do you see in it? And then I'll tell you what I see in it, and let's discuss it and see if it makes sense. Okay? So this was important, and sometimes I think... But those of us uh, today don't bring up our children to think about, you know, what does the law of God mean? And, and what does it mean, all of these principles that we teach in the church? And how do you, what, what are all the implications of them? It's good to teach our children and to do it ourselves, to think about the implications. So he said, how do you read the law? What does it say? And he said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Who, who said that? The lawyer. The lawyer, but where did he get it from? Moses. He got it from Moses. So it was written in the Old Testament. So this is important. So he actually went directly to something. He didn't go to, to, the, Old, to the Ten Commandments. And he said to him, to him, you have answered right. Do this and you shall live. So Jesus said, no, that's a correct answer. You thought about it very well. These two things sum up all of the, the Old Testament. But he, so he was clever on this point and he thought about it and he had a good answer. So that was the good part. The bad part is he wanted to justify himself. And he said, who is my neighbor? 
And, and I heard a very interesting sermon. You know, you can ask some of these questions of almost anything. So Christ says, love your enemies. You could say, well, who's my enemy? Right? Who's my enemy? Let me be legalistic about that one. Right? But the sermon that I listened to said, you know, your enemies could be in your own household. Right? And do you pray sometimes, you know, brother against sister, you know, fighting it out. Like, do you pray for those of your own household? So in the same way, he wanted to justify himself. Who's my neighbor? Is it my fellow Jew? What if he's a Herodian and he likes Herod? What if he's, you know, a Pharisee? What if he's a Sadducee? What if he's a, Ro you know, Rome? Should I, is my, is my Gentile neighbor a neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So Jesus gave him a law, gave him a, a, a parable, we won't go through it here, on how to be a neighbor himself. Jesus never answered his question as to who is his neighbor. He showed him how to be a neighbor. And by him being a neighbor, guess who becomes, who's his neighbor? Anybody who he's a neighbor to. So, so some things were done right. And one of the things that St. Paul says was done right is they created the canon of Hebrew scripture, which was later adopted by the church. And St. Paul says we have to be thankful to them for that. They're, we're blessed to have the scriptures because of them, but they are, they're your enemies because of Christ. The minute they reject Christ, they also become your enemies. So they're beloved because they give you the scriptures, but they're your enemies because of Christ. Uh, now the lawyer sometimes did come up with technicalities and they reason in a circuitous way as all good lawyers sometimes do and one of the lawyers said to him master what you say reproaches he was talking about the Pharisees and them being hypocrites and one and the lawyer said you're also reproaching us and he said woe to you also lawyers for you laid men with burdens grievous to be born and you yourself touch not the burdens with one of your fingers so they would come up with all these intricate things that you would need to do. And, and somebody would come to them saying, you know, master of the law, what should I do? And they would give you this burden that you had to carry, but they themselves wouldn't do it. So he said that that was not, that that wasn't good. Now the Pharisees were themselves were both a social movement and a school of thought. The Pharisee is derived from an ancient Greek term, Pharisaeus, and eventually it's linked up to the Aramaic Prisha, which means to set apart and to be separated. The Pharisees wanted to make sure that the people had a certain way of holiness about them because they saw them being influenced by the Greeks, they saw them, uh, you know, not really understanding the law because they were in exile for many years. They saw problems and they wanted to have to teach the people holiness. So some of the motivation was good, but then they created this fence around the law and much of it was not, not very good. So the Pharisees were educated people and leaders. They would tell you what you needed to do to be righteous. But they became eventually more important than the law. And it was out of the Pharisees that rabbinic Judaism came. Uh, because when the temple was destroyed, the Sadducees who went along with the temple were done away and only the Pharisees were left. And so modern Judaism comes out of Pharisaic Judaism. I have a hundred during the time of Maccabees, the Pharisees, uh, well, there was a division because half 
not completely right. We only have about two minutes left, so let me just give a quick answer. The Essenes uh, came out of the temple area because they objected against the uh, people who ran the temple being so political. Many of them were appointed as both politicians and priests, and they didn't like that. So they went off in the desert as a community, and uh, I didn't get to that. Hopefully we'll get to that next time. But the main thing to remember is there were good ways of obeying the law and there were bad legalistic ways of obeying the law. And we have all these groups that sometimes Christ agrees with some groups, sometimes he agrees with some people, sometimes he points out the hypocrisy of others. It's not like a complete black picture. So you have to read carefully as to when people get that insight, when they really understand something, and when they don't. And that's what I want to kind of leave you with when you read the, the Gospels for yourself. Try to perceive when, when somebody is really understanding something and when Christ recognizes that they understand something and when they don't. One minute. Any other questions? Right, right. And he also says the Pharisees and the Sadducees sit on Moses' seat. So Christ recognized their authority. They, they were the rulers in Israel, the Sadducees and, and the Pharisees. And he said, if they tell you to do something, go and do it. But don't be like them, being hypocrites. You know, not really following with all of your heart God's ways. Did, did they, I guess, how would they have that authority of sitting on Moses' seat? Was, were they part of the So the, so the priestly order definitely sat in Moses' seat because they ran the temple. But the Pharisees were running the synagogues and many, many of the... So in a sense, they became self-appointed. But they, but they had to be leaders in Israel, religious leaders in Israel, to teach the law. There always was. So there were local leaders. If you remember, Moses had leaders of a thousand, leaders of fifties, yeah. leaders of tens. So they filled those positions. So with the priestly order, there was a there was a lineage, there was a succession. There was a lineage. What about the Pharisees? Were you? There was a teaching succession. Okay, like a seminary. A seminary kind of succession, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.